Good morning. This is Cultivating Classroom Management. So I want to talk about the importance of instruction and behavior together. And one of the things that I want to talk about today is definitely meeting the students where they are. And I'll start with a personal experience. This week, I got a new pet. I got a baby conyar which is a type of a parrot. And I've been observing Calypso. And what I noticed was that I really had a lot to learn. The last pet that I had, I bought them in pairs. That I bought two birds. And they basically learned how to do things from each other. And believe it or not, this bird that I have now really didn't know how to do some of the things that birds do. He didn't know how to fly, still doesn't, didn't know how to climb the cage. He didn't know how to get from one side of the cage to another. And he was in sort of a glass enclosure in the pet shop. And what I noticed was that he was getting very introverted and staying in one place And since I'm not a bird, I had to really learn how to communicate to him what he has to do in order to survive and not fall down. And so I was thinking about this in terms of, it sounds like a very silly thing to talk about, but I was thinking about this in terms of the students that I've taught in the past on the K through 12 level. And I think about it also with my graduate students. And I forget sometimes that I have to break things down and really communicate with them so that they don't get frustrated. And for any type of teaching and learning, I think this is really important because When students get frustrated and they don't understand, some students get introverted, like my little parrot there, and some just act out and they get defensive and they want to show off for their friends or they get angry and they can't regulate themselves. So I was thinking about some of the things that, as a teacher, I... um, want to point out that, you know, we have, I have these, these internal and external pressures. And I understand about being a K through 12 teacher because I was one in, and we have these standards to meet these um, standards that are state standards or they're common core, or they are next gen or whatever your school uses. And we're supposed to be at a certain lesson and we're supposed to deliver a certain amount of content. But if we don't meet the students where they are, that's where the students who have the most difficulty grasping or they grasp it in a different way will start to turn off. And this may sound very simple, but I think sometimes when we're doing so many things, when we're completing paperwork, going to meetings, at work, having to sit on inquiry teams and having to produce lessons and produce outcomes, it's easy to 
not understand where the students are having their misconceptions or whether they're too embarrassed to ask us what to do, or they do the opposite, which is to ask us what to do multiple times, but not do it. So all of these things, I think, are at some of the roots of the behavior problems that we have. They're not all of the problems that we have. I mean, some students come from trauma. They um, have you know, internal executive function issues. They um, don't get along with other students, or they have an adverse reaction to where they're sitting. But some of the behavior problems are caused by learning difficulties, and they're caused by not understanding. And they're maybe even caused by the way we're structuring our material. And I'm starting to understand this more because I teach a lot online. And online, you only get but so many chances to explain things in a way that's simple. And you can explain it in the simplest way and say the same thing over and over again, and students still may not understand it. So I don't teach fully online all the time, but it's a good way for me to understand what students are not understanding. Because if a student is either avoiding me or sending me multiple emails about what they don't understand, then either I haven't communicated in a way that's clear or there's so much information coming at them that they are sort of in a log jam and they're afraid to ask. And the same thing happens in the K through 12 classroom. When I used to teach high school, you know, the kids had all this stimulation going on. They had what was going on in the hall, who they're dating, who was fighting with who, which teacher they didn't like, uh, moving from class to class. They had all this stimulation going on whatever was going on at home. And if I made things too indirect or too, um, too hard for them to understand, it would be their pleasure to tune me out or their pleasure to act out. And since I taught regents level work, which in New York State means you're teaching to an English exam that is rigorous, I became pretty much used to meeting the students where they were at. Now, there were some students who had trouble even reading words or, uh, you know, breaking down how to write a word. So I really would have to go step by step and instill confidence in them and maybe teach them some strategies for using phonics or reading phonics phonics or looking up the words themselves or using some kind of other multiple means of gaining the information. But I think the thing is to break down that material and meet the students where they're at is really, really important. And, you know, nowadays they talk about assessment, 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 and everybody thinks of this formal assessment, giving quizzes, these benchmark assessments and programs but assessment can also mean simply observing the student work, observing their behavior, and asking um, questions. So I think that another thing that I've learned in examining my own reflective behavior is when I give directions, 
I'm so used to the habit from teaching students with IEPs of giving directions multiple times, which is a good habit for students in the K through 12 setting. You read the directions three times, but am I doing it in in an effective way? Because if I'm not giving students directions in an effective way, they can act out by just not doing the work. And then I've got my whole classroom topsy-turvy because one of them may want attention. So in addition to avoiding the work, they might be looking for attention from a friend or a peer or a para in the room. So I want to make sure that my directions are delivered in a way that students will feel confident, even if I have to sit there and model one by one with them or the whole class. So that's really important in meeting students where they're at. And again, I'm learning this from my um, my pet, who doesn't really understand anything but my body language and uh, and also giving that person the dignity, that person, that animal, the dignity of trying things themselves and getting some feedback because I can't just hover over them all the time. Hovering over them isn't really teaching them independent living skills. It's not teaching them to try things for themselves and it's not instilling confidence in them. So that's another part of the teaching experience that I'm proud to say I constantly look at. How much independence and am I giving certain people independence? And is my independence age appropriate? If a student is a young student, we want to give them the right amount of independence so as not to um, get them too frustrated. They talk about the right level of frustration, the correct level. The Vygotsky talks about the correct level just enough uh, below the frustration level. We want to do the same thing, but be aware of when the person is making gains and it may not be the gains that the state says are okay or the school says are okay or even their IEP. We have to look at their gains and measure them against themselves, which is very difficult to do when you have pressure on you. But if you want to minimize frustration and maximize uh, self-determination, you have to look at what you're doing to build that confidence in the student. And building confidence doesn't mean just giving them praise. It means that they do it and they feel good about doing it. And in fact, if they can name what they're doing, that's even better. And in special ed, sometimes we think about giving the student a checklist that I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, so they can check it off themselves. But in general, we want to definitely promote that independence because that cuts down on some of the behavior problems. Does it alleviate them completely? We um, Let's not delude ourselves. I mean, students are going to get into conflicts with people. They're going to feel frustrated. They're going to need a movement break or some kind of brain break. They're going to. And there's going to be times that, you know, classroom management means, you know, putting in a strategy that you know of using 
you know, PBIS, uh, Positive Behavior Intervention and Supports, in case you don't know the acronym, or using natural consequences or having your restorative meetings. Um, We've talked about some of those in previous podcasts. There will be times that there's frustration, but when instruction, it's not only uh, engagement is really important. It's not only a matter of engagement, but making sure that instruction is at the right level and balancing ourselves. So if there's pressure from the school, from administration, from the state to make certain achievements, that we use the universal design for learning to help students achieve that, but to also evaluate and reflect on ourselves, whether we're being effective and whether those methods are effective for the most amount of students. Because remember, we can't do individualized lesson plans for every single student in the class. We want to make sure that we use the right grouping. Uh, For certain students, we might hone in and do some some intensive tier three work, more intensive work, but for the most amount of students, we want to give uh, differentiated opportunities by understanding them and meeting them at the level where they are. And in special ed, this may mean having the students working a little more with them during intensive time one-on-one, using specialized design, but it also means making sure that we're aware of where they're at and we're realistic and we never lose sight of the fact that students can achieve. We always want to believe that everybody can achieve their maximum potential, that anything is possible, but we definitely want to reflect on our own practices and keep that in mind. And I continue to do that, even though I am teaching adults and I am teaching in a situation where uh, learners are advanced, there's a great deal of independence that these um, learners are going to be teachers or are teachers or even leaders in some cases. Still, there's different levels of understanding and different uh, levels of experience. And I can't take things for granted or make assumptions like Miguel Ruiz talks about. Don't make assumptions, don't take things personally and be impeccable with your word. And that comes from the four agreements. I've covered three out of four. So I think that's pretty good. And I thank you. And hopefully I will make a little more progress with my new pet and uh, weave that into my podcast to give you a little light, light talk and humor. Thank you very much. This is Cultivating Classroom Management.